Greetings, listeners. John Charles Harmon here. We're reading from Glenn Harmon in World War II, 81st Infantry Division, one of my books. Now, these podcasts come, the last one I do always shows up first on your list, unless you reverse the list, which there's a button to do that in the podcast. Now, my podcasts do stand alone, but I am reading from some of my books. So there will be episode one, episode two, episode three, so on and so forth. And episode one is usually the beginning of the book, and episode four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they go in progression. Now, some people might ask why in a podcast about optimism and being optimistic about the world, are you reading from a book the story of your Uncle Glenn as he told you, told me, on his deathbed? He was some of the worst battles in World War II. Well, it's interesting to note that we are currently in a time of human history where we have the least amount of wars and the least amount of regional conflicts than any time in human history. And that's a great thing for humanity, and I hope it stays that way. Most wars, most conflicts, are a result of censorship, oppression, brainwashing. Usually communist, socialist, oligarchies, dictatorships, are countries that end up starting wars or getting into wars because they oppress people's freedoms. We are fortunate in the United States that we still have freedoms. And let's hope it stays that way. So we're going to move on. We're going to finish up. This is chapter 8, The Quarrel. Uncle Glenn continues. I was put back on the cave and bunker duty. I can't remember how many bunkers and caves we blew up, but just we just kept following orders and went wherever they sent us. We were getting a lot of resistance, and there were Japs hiding out all over the place. I was there about four or five days when I got wounded again. I'm just going to interject here. At one point in the recording with my Uncle Glenn, and when he was telling me about these stories in World War II, I asked him directly, how many Japanese do you think you killed? He wouldn't answer the question. Actually, he refused to answer the question. He said, I didn't really need to know. I'm not sure if he knew, but at the same time, I don't think he wanted me to know, even if he didn't know. Either way, he didn't answer that question. So we continue. We went in to blow up a cave, and one of the guys up in front of us got wounded. Another guy and I went to try and bring him out, we started pulling him out. We were dragging him out of there and got him partway out, of, partway out when a mine, a charge, or something went off. We were knocked out. The guy we were trying to save, he got killed. I got hit in the back with the explosion, and it went off mainly by just a bunch of rock and dirt and coral and everything just flying all over the place. The coral is as sharp as glass and just cuts all to hell. 
Somehow I got rescued out of there, but I was completely out of it. They put me on a boat with a bunch of other wounded and took us back to Angar, where they had a field hospital. I don't know how long it took for us to get there. I just know people were dying on the boat. You knew they died when they stopped moaning. I was in the field hospital for four or five days, and then the whole outfit pulled up and moved to New Chalcedonia, where they put me in a hospital there. I remember exactly that I was given 144 shots of penicillin in that hospital. That son of a bitch wouldn't heal up, and maybe it was from the coral or just how badly I'd been injured. The humidity was very high there also, hot and wet the whole time. I think that contributed to the infections not healing. So I was just a big mess of blood and pus for what seemed like forever. I don't know why they didn't send me to Hawaii or something, but they didn't. I didn't care if I was going anywhere anyway. I was so miserable. Finally, though, I got healed up, and that was a good thing. The R&R, and they put me back in with a new squad. A squad was 12 men. If four men had been killed in that squad, they would find four more and put it back together into the squad to make it 12 again. They sent us off to Leyte in the Philippine Islands. Fortunately, I didn't see a lot of action in Leyte because they had already invaded when I got there. We still went out on a few missions, though, because there were pockets of Japs hiding out, and it was a big place. We went up into the mountains for a few days. I don't exactly remember for how long. We had some fighting, but not much. And then they, we came down out of the mountains to a different location, not the beach we had landed on. I remember getting on a bigger boat, and they took us to invade some other island, and there were only two of us out of that squad that went. That meant the other 10 had been killed or wounded. At some point, I guess I had a nervous breakdown. But at the time, I just thought they were sending me back. I never figured it out until years after the war that when they, when they had sent me off to that little island, I, I had just stood around and I couldn't function anymore. I couldn't sleep at all and had this terrible acid in, indigestion. It felt like my guts were just being torn apart. I tried to eat, but nothing stayed down. I got weaker and weaker. Note. Most likely, after all the injections of penicillin, the normal bacteria in his digestive system system had been killed off. That, along with war, fatigue, post-traumatic stress, and the numerous concussions, no doubt, no doubt had finally taken its toll. <clears throat> when we got back, Captain May called me in and told me that he was going to relieve me and I would be working over in the kitchen with clink hammer. I told him, okay, I appreciate that, sir. I was pretty tired and worn out, so now the kitchen has actually seemed like a good reprieval. Clinkhammer was another guy from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he was a baker. He told me straight out, Harmon, I put in for you. I think you've seen enough fighting, so I'm going to teach you this baking. I tell you, Harmon, once you learn how to bake with me, when you get out of the service, you can open up a bakery and you will become a millionaire. I got a picture of Clinkhammer somewhere, but, but that job only lasted a few days. The second day I was there in the bakery, in comes the sergeant, one of those guys with a lot of stripes on his shoulders. He was ahead of all the food service. He was from Montgomery, Alabama. He came right up to Clinkhammer and said, I'm taking Harmon. 
So that was the end of my baking career. The sergeant told me that I was being moved out, out to help with the breakfast cook. Cleekhammer couldn't st- say anything, you know, so I had to follow the orders. He told me to be in the kitchen at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I showed up the next morning, and that sergeant was standing there in full dress. He said to me, I am going to teach you this and teach you once. Once only, so you had better get it right. He said, I am going to do this with you the whole time, and it takes about two hours, so let's get going. He took me over to a big aluminum pan, about two foot square, laid out on the stove with about two inches of grease in it. He started busting eggs, two at a time with his thumbs, and letting them drop right into the grease. That grease was hot, and it only took a few seconds. Then he scooped them out with a big spatula and put them into individual mess kits. He was damn good at it, and I caught him pretty fast, so that made him happy. Let me tell you, after two hours of that, you were worn out. It was hot, and the grease would splatter up sometimes and burn you. So you had to keep going, though. Keep the line going. When we finished up that morning at 6 a.m., he turned to me and said, that's, that's it, Harmon, you're done for the day. That was two hours of breaking eggs into a hot, greasy pan, and the rest of the day, I was off. He slapped me in the back and walked away. I guess he had found the right man for the job. The first few days, I had to clean up a bit afterwards, but then one day he came in and said to everyone that I was now the top cook in the morning, and the rest of them would have to do the cleanup. So after that, I just had to put in my two hours, and then I was off for the rest of the day. So there I was on Leyte in the Philippines. I had went from special forces ranger to top breakfast chef. I stayed on as head breakfast cook on the boat, and even when they stationed us in Japan, I stayed on as cook. I had all the day off, and a guy that I knew from Leslie, Michigan, who had been two grades behind me, I found out that he was in the Navy there somewhere. He was in SP, the name as an MP military police with the Navy. So I found out where he was, and I went up to see him. He was stationed in some similar ship that had two engines. He was nothing but a big hustler and a crook, dealing off GI goods to the locals, such as cigarettes and other things. He thought he was some big shot, and he had no idea what the war was really about, just he was in it for his own gain. He would confiscate stuff off of the GIs that weren't supposed, they weren't supposed to have and then go down the river on that boat, blow the horn. Out would come running this group of gooks, and then he would sell it to them in his contacts there. Since I was from Leslie, he loved bragging and showing me his whole operation. I just thought to myself, what an asshole this one is. I saw him when he returned from the service. He had taken his earnings and started a used furniture business. I have to admit, though, that he was a businessman. He had lived on a little, a lot, in Leslie in a small trailer and had put himself through high school. His family was poorer than dirt mice when he was growing up, and none of them ever amounted to crap. But by God, he stuck with his schooling and got himself an education. Well, he asked me to go in half with him and run the goods up to another part of the island in a truck. I agreed and did it one time. After that, I got scared. I would get caught, and so I took my earnings out and told him he would have to be on his own. We were ready to go to be shipped off to Japan anyway. 
and I sure as heck didn't need to get myself into any more trouble. Chapter 9, the big one. As we were getting ready to launch off to Japan, Harry Truman dropped the big one, the nuclear bombs. Soon after we launched off, we heard rumors that the war might be over soon because of those nuclear bombs, but no one was coming on anything after all the fighting we had been through. We weren't counting on anything happening. We landed in Japan about a week or 10 days after those bombs had been dropped. We had been waiting out there on the boat to go in, and the day after they signed the surrender, we went in. We pulled in at night. I don't know why, but I guess it seemed safer to the commander. When we got on land, we didn't see anybody, and I thought nobody lived there. Later, we found out they had all fled up into the hills, still scared that we were going to kill them all. There wasn't a soul around. They walked us out to an Air Force base. I was in Japan for a few months. Then I was discharged on December 16, 1945. Note, Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb called Little Boy, unquote, on Hiroshima on August 5, 1945. Boxcar dropped the second atomic bomb called Fat Man, unquote, on Nagasaki on August 9th. 1945. September 2nd, 1945, the Japanese instrument of surrender was signed by the, on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. Not until December 31st, 1946, did Harry Truman declare, quote, although a state of war still exists, it is at this time possible to declare, and I find it to be in the public interest to declare that hostilities have terminated. Now, therefore, I, Harry S. Truman, President of the United States do hereby proclaim the cessation cessation of hostilities of World War II effective 12 o'clock noon, December 31st, 1946. Uncle Glenn returns to the USA. When we got to Japan, we took over a Japanese Air Force camp. We lived in the barracks there. We were in an area in the northern part of Japan near Honshu. I remember sleeping in those barracks on the floor and waking up after the first night and itching like hell. The guy next to me was doing the same and said, Jesus, there's something eating me up. He pulled up his shirt and there were bed bugs. Oh my God, just covering him. We were all infested. <clears throat> they took us all outside and we had to all strip down naked. We started up a fire in a big GI garbage can where we used to wash our clothes in and we threw lice open there. We were all nude, and we would scrub each other down almost until we bled, and then throw the clothes in the big boiling can and boil them down. Then we took our clothes out to dry and stood around until they were dry, which took just about the whole day. While we were doing, some, doing that, some soldiers went to the barracks, and they sprayed them with a mixture of oil and kerosene. We ended up sleeping out on the ground for about a week, so while the barracks were being cleaned and treated. A day or two after we moved back in the barracks, someone was smoking in there and a big fire got started and one of the barracks burnt down to the ground. That ended smoking in the barracks. We didn't do much but clean up the area. When I got my discharge orders, I took a train to Yokohama Bay where we boarded a ship and headed to Seattle, Washington. I was pretty happy to get in out, but God, it was an Awful on the trip to Seattle with guys stealing everything they could get their hands on. They weren't looking for any souvenirs, just stuff they could sell when they got back home. <clears throat> we went 
around Alaska because that was the shortest route to get to Seattle. After a few days, I got on a train to head to Chicago. The trains in those days had to stop every six hours or so to fill up with water and coal for the steam engine. It was an old wreck of a train, and we were packed in there like cattle, hanging on for dear life. When they would stop at some little town, the soldiers aboard would run into town, find any store they could, and grab all the liquor they could find. Just grab it and walk out, not paying for anything. They robbed all the liquor stores at every stop on the way back. It was a mess on that train, with everyone just puking drunk the whole way. We stopped in Montana somewhere, and some guy got on the train, a big guy, telling everyone about his son-in-law who had been serving over in Europe somewhere. He was bragging up his son-in-law, telling how he went through this and that. The next thing you know, boom, a couple of GIs picked him up and threw him right off the train, right out there somewhere in the middle of Montana. We were a dirty, beat-up bunch of guys coming back from the war, and the last thing anyone wanted to hear was some old cowboy bragging about someone we didn't even know. I found out when I was serving that Dorothy had the baby, so I was excited to see my new baby. I still have that telegram. So then when we got to Chicago, we went to Fort Sheridan to get discharged. We got there in the morning, and then in the afternoon around 4 or 5 o'clock, they run me through a big room there with a whole bunch of guys with typewriters. When the line moved along, I'm standing in front of this guy typing up this paper. He said, this is your discharge. Read it and tell me if there are any mistakes on it. I looked at the paper and read it and handed it back to him and told him that it wasn't anywhere near right. He said, then, well, you can stay overnight and see the agent. Tomorrow you can get that strain out or I can give you $300 and you can walk out of here and then go home. I said, give me the $300, that discharge paper, and I'm leaving. So my discharge was never right, but I didn't care. They had my name spelled wrong, where I lived, where I had served, a bunch of things. But I could care less once I had that $300 in my hand. So now I was on my own, and I was discharged. The man told me where to catch the next train to Michigan. I got on that train and headed to Jackson, Michigan. The train was packed, and it was standing room only. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning when the train pulled into Jackson. My mother lived on Lansing Avenue in Jackson. It was only about 4 miles from the train station, so I got a cab and told him to take me to 1117 Lansing Avenue. I had to wait about an hour for a cab because there were so many of us. The cab drivers would ask where people were going and try to take them to the same area. I had had about enough of waiting and asked the next cab that came by where he was going. He said he wasn't going to the north side and that I would have to wait for the next cab. I had two rifles I had brought home with me and back in Chicago, people were going to the up to the incoming GIs and asked them if they had anything they wanted to sell. But I wasn't selling those two rifles. I pulled out one of the rifles and put the bayonet I had on it. I had the rifle in one hand and my duffel bag in the other. The cabbie said, how many of you are going to the west side? I said, how about going to Lansing Avenue? He said right back, no, I'm not going to Lansing Avenue. I pulled out that rifle with the bayonet on it and pointed it right at him and said, you are going to Lansing Avenue or you are going to get undressed right here. He said, yes, sir. 
We are going to Lansing Avenue. Who else is going to Lansing Avenue? I was tired of waiting. It was 3 a.m. when I got to my mother's house. She about fainted when she saw it was me knocking on the door. Her and my dad was divorced by then. She was living alone. I told her I wanted to call Dorothy. She insisted I just stay there for the night, but I called Dorothy anyway, and Dorothy said she would be right over to pick me up. It was about an eight-mile drive, and Dorothy's mother had an old 1937 Ford. It had a back seat in it, but it was a coup. They drove right in and picked me up and took me back to Rive Junction, where Dorothy lived with her mother, two brothers, two sisters, her dad, and her dad had left. He had run off with another woman. They were dirt poor and lived, main, lived mainly off what I sent home to them, which wasn't a lot. I did win big in a poker game one night when I was serving, and I sent that money home to them. That kind of saved them during that time. That was the first time I saw my baby, Lynn. It was about 6 a.m. by then. I was exhausted, and we all lay down on the bed. Dorothy, I, Lynn, her little brother, and her two sisters. Everybody was laying on that one bed. They all wanted to see me and be close to me. We must have talked for an hour or two, and then her mother fixed some breakfast. All the younger kids' eyes were the size of teacups, fascinated by seeing a soldier home from war. A few days later, I took that $300 and bought a mobile home. In those days, they were made out of wood and covered with leather, but it was a nice one. We lived in that all through the winter, right next to her mother's house. My final words. I have more of my Uncle Glenn's story recorded, but I will not go into all the details here. He and Dorothy raised their children the best they could, they later separated, mainly because of Glenn's drinking, gambling, and hunting too much. A few years later, they got back together. Dorothy died before Glenn. In April of 2012, Glenn was able to get someone he knew from Florida to come out to California and drive him back to Florida. I visited him when he was put in the hospice home near downtown L.A. on weekends as often as I could. It was a long drive weekday, so most of my family could not go to see him very often. He was very happy when he at last made it back to Florida. I would call him a few times each week to see how he was doing. He was happy to be at home. A month or so after he was back in Florida, Uncle Glenn passed away. His story is part of my family history, part of America's history and part of the legacy of the Wildcats. Modern warfare, as we all know, is very different from the warfare of World War II. But what is not different is the devotion, courage, determination, and the true patriotism of the America's military. America's military is the one beacon of light for much of humanity that still suffers under dictatorships, autocratic religious leaders, and anything other than democracy. Uncle Glenn never had any desire to leave the USA after he returned from World War II. Uncle Glenn made sure everyone in his family bought American automobiles. 
I think that sums up his love of country. Even though his body and mind were severely scarred from the battles, he fought for her. That's the end of the episode and the book I wrote on Uncle Glenn. Like I said before, it's, I gave it, sent it off to most of the military libraries and they sent me a lot of letters and stuff. And I wrote that back almost 10 years ago. Now we're in 2021. The other day I was in the gym. I go to the gym in my gated community here three, four times a week, work out. And just before I'd gone to the gym, I was watching the news on TV and someone, had they were talking about how the president, our new president, President Biden, or someone is in the administration had come up with the idea or the concept that we should eliminate some of the training for the soldiers so that it's easier for women to get into the military or other people to get into the military, eliminate some of the requirements for the training. And at first I thought, oh my God, that's stupid. You know, but I got in the gym and I'm working out, working out and stuff. And then I, you know, I start thinking about it. And I was thinking like, you know, why is there such, this such divide between conservative and liberal and this and that, and everybody has to go into camp and think about certain things. And I thought about it, you know, it's the military now, it's, it's drones and high-tech stuff. I remember 15, 20 years ago, they were recruiting people out of the video games uh, places, you know, to the military was going in and recruiting people out of the, the video game places because of all the high-tech stuff they're doing. So, you know, I'm thinking, well, yeah, for certain roles in the military, maybe they don't need all that training. Uh, maybe you don't have to pass the test to do a billion sit-ups and push-ups and run 10 miles and all the physical training. If going into the military, you're not going to be doing those type of tasks. But at the same time, if you're going to be doing actual combat or certain tasks that require physical things, then yes, you should do those. So it shouldn't be a, a, a yes or no, black or white or this or that issue. There be, should be something in between, you know, where people can come to some kind of agreement on certain things. And, you know, that's just my view on that. And I, I, I don't think that, you know, it's a f odd view. I think it's probably just a common sense view. But... Now yeah, that's the way it is nowadays. And, um, you know, back, back to the story, if, if some of you listen to the story of my Uncle Glenn in World War II, you have to understand, that was not a story he told to anybody. That's something he kept inside of him forever. So I really hope if there's any military people that were in battles or had strange situations in the military, that they record or write down their stories for posterity, for the history of their families, and for the history of our country. If it wasn't for uh, for our military and the U.S. military and democratic military around the world, we would all be enslaved. We would have been enslaved by Germany. China enslaves their piece of people to to a large degree right now, even though you know, we believe that China is, is free and has democracy in a lot of ways. It's freer than it is in the U.S. because they're, they're, they're recruiting engineers and, and 
you know, brilliant people out of our universities to go there and work in their economies and offer them more money and everything else. And here, you know, we're, we're just trying to, uh, to get by, you know, get through this epidemic and move on. And uh, we've, we've sort of decided to hand over the reins of our government, you know, to the, these big tech oligarchs and, you know, big brother, watch over everybody, what everybody does. And uh, I don't think it's the best thing, you know. I, I really think we need to have strong individuals, strong freedoms, strong liberty, strong creativity. And, you know, I think in, a, in an earlier episode, you know, I, uh, on my book on happiness and optimism, I w- there was a section in there where, you know, honestly, I, I, I really believe... <laughs> The vast, vast, vast large percent of Americans are good people. And the vast large percent of Americans are not racist, homophobic, or anything else of that. The fact that people may run into incidents here and there or various things, and then they get blown up out of proportion in the media, that doesn't mean that in general people are like that, because they're not. I moved recently from... California, where I'd lived in Southern California growing up, to Northern California, where I'd lived for about 10 years, here to Florida. And yes, Florida probably is more, you know, racist in in terms of there's more racist people than California. But you don't even notice it. I mean, people get along. Everybody wears a mask. Everybody can go out and do everything. It's, you know, and it's just that, you know, somehow we're, we're letting the media and we're letting um, politicians and big corporations, especially these media giants like Facebook, they are media corporations. I don't know if you noticed, but Facebook's now pumping news onto your feed. We let them dictate how we think and what we believe, and we're becoming isolated we are isolated because of the COVID and then we're becoming more isolated in our own thoughts. And, you know, that's got to stop. That's got to end. Because if we want freedom around the world and liberty for all humans, okay, you have to stand up for it. People like my Uncle Glenn and soldiers have fought for a long time for people's liberty and for their freedom. So if you don't stand up to it and put your foot down and fight, no censorship. If you don't stand up to it, then you'll become just like the sheep and they will herd you into a corner and tell you what to do, how to think, what to buy, where to go, so on and so forth. So the next few episodes, I haven't determined what they're going to be yet, but probably going to get into some aspects of Buddhism. I have a lot of novels that I've written and I may read those as podcasts over time. We'll see. So, ciao and adios. Talk to y'all later.